Now, I'm conscious that over this past week, there has been a surge in the number of uh, coronavirus cases here in the UK, more than 200, um, as I saw at least yesterday, I don't know what it is this morning, at least two deaths, and we're being told that we are moving now from the sort of containment uh, phase to the delay phase, as experts warn that the virus is highly likely to spread very significantly across the nation. And so, you know, you could be coming to church this morning with a whole host of questions on your mind, anxieties, fears. Is God in control of this or not? Am I really safe? Or are things more serious than people are making out? Is this our fault? Is this God's judgment on us? Is this the end? And if so, what hope is there for us? Now, we will all be coming from different views around it. I'm sure you've all got anxieties, all got questions. I want to reassure you that this passage today, even though it's written thousands of years ago, does speak powerfully into our situation. Not directly. If you've been following our series, you know that 1 Samuel is not about the coronavirus. It is about kingship. It is about God establishing his monarchy and this great line of kings leading to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. But as we see God providentially at work in this passage, through his anointed king, for the good of his people, so we see the same God at work providentially today, through his ultimate anointed one, Jesus Christ, for the good of the whole world. So be encouraged as we come to this particular passage today, given the week that we've just had. Now, let me say that this passage is a long one, right? Two whole chapters. What did you think of the reading? There is so much going on in it. What did you make of these lost donkeys that like take up most of the first half of chapter nine? It's just a little bit weird. And most of the characters, like most of the characters in this story, who just don't seem to know what's going on, I have to admit that at times I felt like that this week. My goodness, I've got to preach on this. Here is how I think it is most helpful to look at this passage, to look at it thematically. That is, or in this particular case, with a character study. I want us to look at what the whole passage says about God, what the whole passage says about Saul, and what the whole passage says about the people, the nation of Israel. Because God is unchanging. What we learn about God in this passage, we learn about the God we follow today. Because Saul is God's anointed. We see a picture and a pointer to Jesus Christ, God's ultimate anointed one. And insofar as you and I are quite similar to the people back then, what we learn about them, we learn about us. So bear that all in mind as we come to the passage now. Three things for us to see, which will help us very much given the week we've just had. One, a providential God. Two, an ambiguous king. Three, a mixed reaction. First, a providential God. And by providential, I mean the amazing way that God orchestrates all things in the universe for the good of his people. Now, 
as I say, I don't know what you made of these lost donkeys in the first half of chapter 9, but you would be forgiven for thinking, what on earth is going on? As Saul's father loses his donkeys, and we pass through these five towns with Saul, Ephraim, Cilicia, Shalim, Benjamin, and Zuth. But there's no sign of the donkeys. But Saul's servant has heard about this man of God, but they've got no money to bring to them. And then the servant just happens to find a quarter of a shekel of silver in his pocket, but they don't know where the man of God lives. And they just so happen to bump into these women at the well. You say, oh, he's just on up ahead. And as they go on up ahead to this high place, who should be there? Verse 14, it was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now, is that not just a little bit weird? This wild donkey chase. Isn't this book about kingship? Isn't this a book about God establishing his monarchy? Hasn't the people just asked for a king in chapter 8? Aren't we waiting to see who this king is? What is the mystery of the lost donkeys? Take a look at verses 15 to 17. Now, the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Now, these are stunning verses. These are stunning verses because they reveal to us what is really going on. That behind all this seemingly ordinarily, ordinary, mundane, at times quite weird details about the lost donkey, there is nothing ordinary about this at all. But behind it all, the guiding hand of God, this providential God orchestrating all things, all the details that we read, that we are given in this first half of the chapter so that Samuel and Saul will meet together and the people will get the deliverer that they need. The Lord's providence, working out all things, even lost donkeys, for the good of his people. And it's not just here that we see God's providence. Do you notice in chapter 10, God gives Saul three signs to confirm that he really is his anointed in verses 2 to 6, we're told about two men who will, he will meet near Rachel's tomb who will tell him the donkeys have been found. Three men at the great tree of Tabor, verse 3, carrying three young goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. After that, verse 5, a procession of prophets in Gebeah, when the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon Saul. And the end of verse 9, over the page, 280, end of verse 9, we're told all these signs were fulfilled that day. The astrophysicist, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross argued that the probability, I don't know how they make this up, but come to an answer, but hey, argued that the probability that these three events mentioned in verses 2 to 6 happening in sequence, just as Samuel predicted, would be one in eight million. Now, I don't know if that math sort of persuades you in any shape or form. The point is this. God is orchestrating everything with such precise timing and accuracy, people, places, and events to bring his good purposes about. 
And it's not just here that we see God's providence. We see it in the final section as well, verses 17 to 27, as Samuel summons the people together, and God makes sure that the lot always falls in the right place. On the tribe of Benjamin, on the clan of Matri, and then finally on Saul himself. Nothing left to chance. Even when the people, have, people can't find Saul, again, it is the Lord who identifies where he's hiding. So, take a step back from the whole passage. And do you see the Lord's providence at work throughout? In all the details of life, the ordinary, the mundane, the exact timing events, even working through the willful choices of people without impinging upon their wills. And remember, all this takes place in the context of chapter 8, where the people have just rejected God as their king, and he is still working all these things out for their good. God establishing a king even as they reject him as king. In this intricately planned, detailed way, friends, there really is no one like our God. There is no one like him who works so graciously, intricately, carefully in all the details of life and your life for the ultimate good of the universe. You know, when I think about how I came to faith in Jesus Christ, when I think of all the chains of events that led to that moment, and look, I have shared some of this with you guys before, but my dad wanting his son to learn lots of languages when he was young, such that I learned Latin, French, German, and Spanish. And even though I didn't get on with my French exchange, we used to fight all the time, and I couldn't keep up with my German exchange, my Spanish exchange became a really close friend. And I used to visit Spain twice a year, and I fell in love with the language, so I wanted to study at A-level, and then continue it at university, even though I loved maths and did maths. I did maths with Spanish, which when I was at university decades ago, no one had ever heard of. There's probably only one university in the country that did it. And just so happens that two years later, someone else wanted to do just the same course at just the same university, wanted to talk to me about it. And that is how I met Rowena Brown, a follower of Jesus Christ, who introduced me to the Christian faith. Now, from my point of view, all I was doing was just making ordinary, mundane choices about life and the future. I can tell you there are a lot of wrong choices in that and foolish decisions and simple. I was doing it all with no reference to God at all. And yet I can look back now and see the way God was graciously, mercifully working it all out with all those different people and places and times and events for my ultimate good that I could meet Jesus Christ, my deliverer, and be rescued from the ultimate enemies of sin and death. Oh, the mystery and the majesty of the Lord's providence. We think we need to see some miracle, some burning bush and parting of the Red Sea. Do you not realize everything now in your life, coming here today where you're sitting right now, every second is under his perfect, sovereign plan. Friends, do you see the Lord's providence in your life? 
Let's marvel at it. Let's praise him for it. It is so reassuring. No matter what happens to you next week, no matter how ordinary, how mundane, how weird at times things may get, God is still in control, at work behind it all, for the good of his people. Even if you have been running away from the Lord recently, rejecting him as king in certain areas of your life, that does not stop him being in control. That does not stop him being at work for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Even if you were to contract coronavirus this week. God is no less in control, no less providential. The New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, tells us that since the creation of the world, since before the creation, God has been working out absolutely everything, all things, for his ultimate good plans and purposes. Do you think he's going to stop now and stop this week? Such that if you are someone here trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be absolutely sure that God really is at work in your life right now for your ultimate good, even if you cannot see it. That's the first thing to see from this passage a providential God. The second thing to see from this passage is the type of king that God providentially chooses to give to the people, an ambiguous king, a king the people want, a king, well, not the king, the people need. In terms of what the people want, just flip back to chapter 9, the start of this passage, always really important to notice the first thing that is said about a character in Old Testament narrative. And what are we told about Saul when we're introduced to him in verse 2? Kish had a son named Saul. How is he described? As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Outwardly, very impressive. No one more attractive. No one more powerful. Here is Brad Pitt, the rock, rolled into one. And if you look just at the end of the passage, right, when Samuel announces Saul to the people, look what he says in verse 24 of chapter 10. Do you see the man the Lord has chosen. There is no one like him among the people. If there was such a thing as Mr. Israel, then Saul is your man. Even the name Saul means asked for. Here is the king the people want. God gives them exactly what they want. But almost straight away, we are given plenty of hints and clues that this is not the king they need. Outwardly impressive, Saul may be, but what about spiritually, inwardly? Did you notice how Saul seems to be oblivious to the existence of Samuel, this great prophet of God, who he is, where he lives? It is the servant who comes up with this plan, not Saul. 
when Saul meets Samuel in verse 18 of chapter 9, he doesn't even recognize him. I mean, how can Saul not know about Samuel, who's been judging the whole nation of Israel the entirety of his life? I mean, can you imagine being a lifelong Arsenal supporter, not knowing who Arsene Wenger is, being a lifelong Anglican and not knowing the Archbishop of Canterbury? There'd be something wrong with that, wouldn't there? Saul withholds the truth from his uncle in verse 16 of chapter 10, even though God has just given him three signs confirming he is the anointed. Just tells him about the donkeys, doesn't tell him about the kingship. And when Saul's great moment arrives at the end of the passage, his coronation, where is he to be found? He's hiding in the baggage. Hardly leadership material. Perhaps most significant of all. Did you notice that nowhere in the passage does God actually call him king? In verse 16 of chapter 9, he calls him a ruler. In verse 24 of chapter 10, Samuel calls him the Lord's chosen. But it is only the people themselves who call him king. Long live the king. This might be the king the people want. He is not the king they need. And this gives us a vital lesson for us today. Sometimes God will give us what we want. Give us what we ask for, even when it comes from sinful motives, precisely to show us the consequences of our sin and to show us what we really need. Getting the kids, let me give you an illustration of this, getting the kids out of the house in the morning, I'm conscious that two of them are sitting here in this service now, um, can be quite a palaver. Feeding them, dressing them, getting their shoes on, getting their jackets on. Given the elder two are here, let me say, the younger two often struggle with the jackets part of it. I don't want to, I explain. It's cold out there. You need to put a jacket on. Please do. No. We're late. We're in a hurry. Just put your jacket on. Don't want to. As they run off and hide behind the curtains. Now, sometimes I just have to, like, grab them, put the jacket on. When I've got a bit more time, maybe I can reason with them some more. I should just tell them off for disobeying me. Every now and again, every now and again, do you know what I do sometimes? I give them what they want. I say, fine. Go out without a jacket. I let them get cold, get a cold, get wet. Well, out of spite, not because I don't love them, but precisely so they can see the consequences of what they are doing, of not listening to me, of not doing what they should do, and of seeing their need <laughs> of a jacket and of listening to me. So it is with God. He loves us. He knows what's best for us. But sometimes he will give you exactly what you want, exactly what you ask for, even if it is from sinful motives, precisely to show you where that leads and show you the consequences of it and how foolish it is so you see your real need to come back to him and come to Jesus Christ. Now, if you are experiencing some of those consequences right now, perhaps that's what's going on 
God still loves you. He's still at work providentially in your life, but sin has consequences. He wants you to see that, to confess your sin and turn back to him. There are implications here for how we choose our church leaders. Outwardly, people may seem very impressive indeed. But we've always got to ask the question, what about spiritually? What about inwardly? Did you know that in the pastoral epistles, the three letters in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that tell you about church leadership, take 1 Timothy 3, for example. There are 17 qualifications for being a church leader. You can read about later in 1 Timothy 3. 16 of those 17 are about character. Inward character. Spiritual godliness. Only one of them is ability to teach. And yet, how often in our constituency can we skim over the character bits? Blah, 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 blah. Ability to teach. Blah, 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 blah. Can you teach? Great. Be a leader. The folly of giving undue weight to previous career success, natural charisma, public speaking ability, but not enough weight to people's character. Gentleness, being above reproach, manages your own household well, not quarrelsome, good reputation with outsiders, to name just a few of those 16. Is the leadership crisis that we are facing in the church right now a consequence of this? It's a question. All leaders are sinful, so all leaders are going to fall from grace. But the sheer number of leaders at the moment, the number, caught up in the same sins of power and lust and control, is God showing us the terrible consequent corporately of our sin? And the people in power choosing leaders they want, but not the leaders we need. And as we see this ambiguous King Saul and we see the failed leaders around us today, we can't help but look forward, look now to the ultimate king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, the one and only perfect leader who the prophet Isaiah says had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him outwardly unimpressive but inwardly full of grace and truth who is tempted in every way but was without sin someone who was not oblivious to God's plans and purposes on his life but was the perfect embodiment of them and someone that certainly did not hide from God's call on his life, but at great cost to himself, went to the cross and suffered and died for you and for me as our deliverer to rescue us from sin and death. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, come to him, turn back to him. He's the only one we can ultimately trust. Well, a providential God, an ambiguous king, thirdly, finally, and more briefly, 
a mixed reaction. Because in verse 24 of chapter 10, Samuel introduces Saul to all the people. He says, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. And Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gabir, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Now, do you see the mixed reaction to Saul here? Some people accept him as God's chosen king, ruling under God, under the, the rights and duties of kingship. But others reject him and don't trust God's providential purposes for him. Now, I want to apply this somewhat indirectly, I admit, to the mixed reaction to the coronavirus right now. Because there is a lot of fear out there. And distrust, with stock markets crashing, panic buying in the supermarkets, face masks on, handshakes out, and in certain cases, end-of-the-world predictions. Did you know that there's an international shortage of toilet paper right now? You see this? International shortage. Out of everything that people might want to panic buy and stockpile, food, water, you know, essential necessities, it's toilet paper that people are going for and we are, we've run out of. And psychologists are trying to explain why. For example, Dr. Demetrius Spirikos from UCL explains there's a difference between disaster panic and general panic, with toilet paper becoming a symbol of the latter. He says, disaster panic is normally for something you have more information on, such as a natural disaster. You know it's going to happen, and you usually know it will last a couple of days, and you can prepare by being somewhat rational with what you buy. But in public health issues, we have no idea about the time or intensity, so we buy more than we need to. It's our only tool of control. And he goes on to explain that because toilet paper is a long shelf life, it's prominently featured and big in size, we are psychologically drawn to it in times of crisis. (laughs) Now, as from your reaction, we'll leave the psychology to the psychologists. Let me, though, pick up on the theology. It's our only tool of control. Of course people are fearful. Of course people are panic buying if this is their only tool of control. If ultimately there is no one in charge and we're all just here by chance, no beginning, no middle, no end, no story to it all, then perhaps things really are spiraling out of control and you better do whatever you can to make it through it. But of course, as Christians, we know that's not the case. We've just seen we have a God who is in complete and utter control. Who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect king of kings. Who has not just died on a cross to pay for our sins. He's defeated death. He's risen from the grave. In his life, he could heal people with just a touch, sometimes with just a word. If you contract coronavirus this week, he could heal you just like that, should he wish. If you die from coronavirus, he can raise you from the dead on the last day, just like that. 
There is absolutely nothing we need to worry about, nothing we need to fear, nothing we need to panic about. Now, let me be clear. That does not mean we shouldn't be prudent, we shouldn't be careful, we shouldn't wash our hands. Of course we should. It's why we've got the soap today. It's why we're going to be taking the wine out of the thimbles at the Lord's Supper. But it does mean that ultimately we have nothing to panic about. We can trust him and his purposes for us. In the past, Christians have often stood out during times of plagues, diseases, precisely because of the way they responded, not panicking, not thinking only of themselves, but helping others, loving others, sacrificially, just as Jesus Christ has loved us. Now, don't mishear me. I don't want to feed into any panic by making out things are as bad as the plague. They're not. I'm simply making the point about the difference we can make. Because of our providential God, because of our perfect King, and because of the loving reaction, we can show amidst it all. So, friends, do not worry about the week ahead. Trust in the Lord's providence and keep pointing people to the one true perfect King. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we love your word, the relevance of it to all of life, whatever we are facing. Even a book about kingship, you establishing a monarchy, still speaks powerfully into our lives today and particularly what's gone on in this country this past week and how we thank you for your providence, the way you provide for your people in all the intricate, detailed things of life, timings, people's places, everything. There's nothing outside your control. And ultimately, we see that in your son, Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death for us, his resurrection from the grave. He is ruling the one person we can trust. So please, would our response to anything we face this week, but particularly the coronavirus, be not one of fear and panic, but one of trust in you and living life for you and pointing people to you. We ask it for Jesus' sake.